There are a lot of active protest movements in the United States these days. The right wing has anti-government militias and armed protesters storming government buildings to protest lockdowns and mask mandates. On the left wing, we have protests against police brutality and against whatever new dumb thing Donald Trump is planning every single day. There are protests going on right now against rampant voter suppression, like the Texas governor's attempt to limit ballot drop-off boxes to one per county, even though Harris County has roughly 5 million residents and Loving County doesn't even have 200. Protests are so common these days that they were brought up during the first presidential dumpster fire of a debate, with the extremely tone-deaf section titled, quote, Race and Violence in Our Cities. Now, I don't have to explain to you that a category intentionally blurring the lines between the problems of racist policing and property damage caused during protests is some bullshit. But you might not know that this is an old strategy first used by Barry Goldwater in his bid for president against Lyndon B. Johnson in order to conflate crime in the cities with the civil rights movement. While watching videos on the news of looting and property damage at protests, you might wonder to yourself, why don't the protesters get organized? Why don't they pick a leader like Martin Luther King Jr. or a Malcolm X and use their organization to either prevent or disavow people who show up and throw bricks or start fires? Why is it that there's no president of Antifa who can make sure the organization doesn't do anything to make the movement look bad? Well, I'm going to tell you a story that explains one reason why this doesn't happen. If these groups organized like this, they would probably be infiltrated and destroyed by domestic intelligence organizations like the FBI. I won't claim that this is the only reason, especially because I have exactly zero evidence that the FBI is doing this today. What I do have evidence of is the FBI taking steps to disrupt and destroy similar groups to Antifa and Black Lives Matter during the 50s, 60s, and 70s using tactics that ranged from immoral to blatantly illegal. Fair warning, this is going to sound like some tinfoil hat, Alex Jones, Bush did 9-11 level conspiracy theory nonsense. While my speculation about what intelligence agencies are doing about modern protest movements is mostly speculation, everything historical in this podcast is straight from a congressional hearing where all of this was uncovered. However, there is some evidence of similar activity happening today. The recent plot that the FBI foiled to kidnap and murder Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer was, was brought down because the FBI agents monitored the online communications of right-wing groups, and even though they met in a basement and all left their phones outside, an FBI agent wearing a wire infiltrated their group. Already, it has come out that during the protests over George Floyd's murder, a Customs and Border Patrol Department uh, Predator drone was flown over the protests, presumably to record high-definition defi high video of the people below. Law enforcement has also used the device known as stingrays and dirt boxes, both of which can be used on the ground or on aircraft to pretend to be a cell tower and record who's in an area, where they are, and in some cases can be used to make your phone open a browser and download spyware without your knowledge. These are not hypotheticals, these are just readily available facts. Protests and protesters are under high-tech surveillance, and that's only the stuff that is so obvious reporters can figure it out. As Captain Barbosa would have said, 
You best start believing in sci-fi dystopias, Miss Turner. You're in one. Today, we are going to talk about an FBI program that was designed to disrupt and destroy political groups in America that the government saw as dangerous, destabilizing, or subversive. This is directly contrary to basic constitutional rights, like the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech and freedom of association, the Fourth Amendment's protections against warrantless search and seizure, and the Eighth Amendment's protection against cruel and unusual punishment. The FBI broke up marriages, used IRS audits as a weapon, silenced poets and students protesting against the war in Vietnam, and risked getting people killed because the state didn't like what they had to say, even if it didn't break any laws. They secretly declared war on people ranging from communist and KKK members to Martin Luther King Jr., a man who was specifically targeted as a potential, quote, messiah who could unify and electrify the movement, end quote. This was the FBI's COINTELPRO operation a portmanteau of counterintelligence program. Already in the name, you can see a major source of the problems that developed within the FBI. This was not titled a surveillance operation or a domestic investigation operation. This was counterintelligence, as in what you do to disrupt foreign spies during a war. Because it was classified this way, it was a matter of national defense, and so didn't have to follow any normal rules about how it treated the people under FBI investigation. This is a story about who the FBI targeted, what strategies they used to disrupt these groups, and whether or not elected officials knew about and signed off on those missions. Now, I started getting interested in this when I was finishing up my podcast on the Russian Revolution. I read a lot about the founding of the Soviet Union, a country that claimed to be a worker's paradise. In reading about the founding of that state, you can immediately see where it goes completely off the rails into tin-pot dictatorship. It started with the ruling party deciding that the opposition is not a group to be reasoned with, they are an enemy to be outlawed and destroyed by the secret police. The founding of the Cheka, a group that eventually became the KGB, and was tasked with hunting enemies of the state, destroying their lives, and making them disappear, was one of the most obvious steps away from being a country that actually works for working people in the founding of the Soviet Union. The Soviet secret police were accountable to no one but the leaders of the Soviet Union, and because of that, they expanded their power from just hunting and destroying enemies of the revolution to hunting anyone who dissents against the way the country is being run. Killing peasants who complain about there not being enough food is so far from a worker's paradise that it is laughable that they tried to pass it off as one. But anyone who pointed out that the emperor has no clothes can be killed themselves. A lot of people have this idea about the Cold War these days, that it was kind of pointless and silly. And while the United States has done a lot of dumb things in the name of fighting communism, I actually fully support that we stood against the Soviet Union because they were bad news for the people forced to live in their system. Reading about the Soviets made me grateful to live in a country with a constitution that guarantees the right to say to the government is inept and chaotic and to demand that they do better. This problem with other systems came with a built-in assumption. 
that the United States does not have a secret police, and that we are fundamentally different from authoritarian systems like the Soviet Union. But I wanted to explore this idea a little bit more. Do our security organizations behave like the KGB? Are they as bad as those in other systems? It's these questions that led me to my research into the COINTELPRO program, which is one of the clearest examples of the FBI behaving like the Soviet KGB. This operation went on from the early 1920s with the first Red Scare to at least the 1970s, when all of this information came out so publicly that Congress put together a Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities. Since that name is impossibly long, it is referred to as the Church Committee, and the Church Report is a freely available document that details all of this information. Since shortly after the report became public, the FBI publicly announced that they weren't doing COINTELPRO anymore, and ordered that nothing ever be labeled COINTELPRO again so that it wouldn't show up when people filed Freedom of Information Act requests on the word COINTELPRO. Now before we get going, my disapproving tone for this whole operation is going to sound a lot like a defense of the groups that are being attacked by the FBI, and that's really not what I'm trying to do here. The whole reason the FBI started trying to disrupt the Communist Party in the United States is because the FBI claimed to have clear evidence that the American Communists were working with the Soviet Union to commit sabotage within the United States. The KKK planned and executed hate crimes to maintain white supremacy, so it's hard to muster up anything more than the world's tiniest violin when the FBI damn near destroyed their organization. The student protest groups are the hardest to justify the FBI disruption, but they included groups like the Students for a Democratic Society, an organization of communist students who eventually created a splinter cell called the Weathermen, who organized terrorist attacks like the 1975 bombing of the State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C. This story is not just a clean-cut case of the government is bad and America has an evil secret police that is just as bad as the Soviet Union. Like Donald Trump asked in that Atlantic reporting about World War I, where he was avoiding visiting soldiers' graves, you might find yourself confused as to, quote, who are the good guys in this war? Well, the world is a little more complicated than that. As I tell this story, I want you to think about where the line should be between the state trying to stop violence, like the assassination of Governor Whitmer, and preventing the government from crushing civil liberties and real political speech. So what was COINTELPRO in a nutshell? Well, COINTELPRO started as an anti-Soviet counterintelligence program. It evolved into a program to combat radicalism and change to the status quo. It culminated in a program to just fight anything even vaguely related to the groups they were targeting, which meant attacking any group that was left-leaning, black, or against the U.S. war abroad. They used strategies that ranged from comical and pointless to destroying people's lives on a whim. They continued this program based off of not being told no by elected officials, even though those officials barely knew that these programs existed. Elected officials not wanting to know more contributed to this situation and allowed the FBI to expand and abuse its power. So who did they target? Well, before we get into the groups that were targeted by the FBI, I'd like to remind everyone again of a quick poem 
This one is by Martin Niemöller, a World War I U-boat commander who publicly opposed Hitler during his rise to power in Germany. One of the actions that sparked his opposition of the Nazi state was finding out that his phone had been tapped by the Nazi secret police, the Gestapo. So here goes the poem. First, they came for the communists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a communist. Then, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. It's easy to justify in your head when the FBI takes steps to disrupt and prevent hate crimes by the KKK, or the planning of a Soviet-dominated communist takeover of the United States. But these are just the first groups that were targeted by the FBI. Over time, the organizations that were targeted for disruption increased in scope. Instead of just targeting Communist Party members, they began to target student groups protesting against the Vietnam War. They created a new division to target black nationalist movements, which included groups ranging from the Black Panther Party to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the nonviolent church organization run by Martin Luther King Jr. I really want to hammer this point, not because I'm sympathetic to groups like the Communists and the KKK, because they mostly suck and should have been under heavy law enforcement scrutiny. But damn it, we have rights in this country, and the clearest sign that many communist countries don't give a shit about their workers is the suppression of political activity by secret police forces. If people break laws, they should be publicly arrested and publicly tried, with a right to face their accuser and see any evidence against them. Even when it is the KKK being broken up with illegal and immoral tactics, the ends do not justify the means. The idea that the loss of political rights for some is a dangerous, slippery slope can be seen in the program that the FBI called the New Left COINTELPRO. This category was similar to the others in that it started out very, very narrowly focused on communists, but soon expanded to mean anything left of Ronald Reagan. The program grew like the blob until it was investigating feminist groups and political debate teams and any organization of college students protesting against the Vietnam War, like the Students for a Democratic Society. One of Richard Nixon's advisors who pushed for expanding the FBI's infiltration of colleges talked about what actually happened over time as a theoretical downside of the program, saying, quote, the risk was that you would get people who would be susceptible to political considerations as opposed to national security considerations, or would construe political considerations to be national security considerations. To move from the kid with a bomb to the kid with a picket sign, and from the kid with the picket sign to the kid with the bumper sticker of the opposing candidate." End quote. No group fit this slide from targeting dangerous people to targeting anyone with opposing political opinions than in the black nationalist COINTELPRO. The stated goal of the program was to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate-type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesmen, membership, supporters, 
and to counter their propensity for violence and civil disorder. Efforts of the various groups to consolidate their forces, or to recruit new or youthful adherents, must be frustrated." End quote. A major target of this operation was the Black Panthers Party, which was targeted under the justification that a goal of the party was a new country for black people to be formed out of a couple of southern states. In order to prevent the Black Panther Party from recruiting young members, they targeted their program that provided free food for thousands of black children for free before school. This breakfast program was a major social good that helped black communities, but it also made it much easier for the Black Panther Party to recruit among the youth and develop new members. School administrators noticed immediate improvements for black students participating in the program, saying, quote, they weren't falling asleep in class, they weren't crying with stomach cramps, end quote. To disrupt this food program, the FBI went door-to-door telling parents that the food was infected with STDs. They raided sites and harassed Black Panther Party members in front of children and photographed children that participated in the program to intimidate them and their families. Quote, the night before the first breakfast program in Chicago was supposed to open, a female panther told historian Nick Heenan, the Chicago police broke into the church and mashed up all the food and urinated on it. End quote. Directing local police, media, or landlords to the presence of subversive groups was a perfectly legal tactic the FBI could use to disrupt their ability to organize and any activity to recruit young people with a, were a key target. Though the Black Nationalist Cointelpro operation was justified to officials by measures taken against the Black Panthers, the FBI disruption operation quickly spread beyond groups that were either nationalist or violent, and rolled in any group of black people pushing for social change. Martin Luther King Jr., with his Southern Leadership Conference, are the most well-known examples of how this program stretched their justifications from using illegal methods to prevent violent groups from organizing, to using illegal methods to stop Americans from expressing their freedom of speech and association. In the founding goals of the Black Nationalist Cointelpro, the FBI said that they wanted, quote, to prevent violence on the part of Black Nationalist groups by pinpointing potential troublemakers and neutralizing them before they exercise their potential for violence, end quote. In other words, the stated goal of this operation was the exact plot of Minority Report, trying to stop crimes before they happen. But instead of an omnipotent person's soup that predicted crimes, it was just a bunch of racists attacking people that they didn't like. This is the danger that comes with a secret police that decides that not only are they disrupting violent groups, they are going to disrupt any group that wants major systemic change that the government doesn't want. For the FBI, black people wanting basic human rights and freedoms that come with American citizenship was dangerous and disruptive, so they decided that they were against any change that made that happen. This is how an anti-communist operation can transform into an engine of oppression for ordinary people looking for a fair shot at life in America. So now that we know what groups they targeted, let's talk about the playbook. From the records of these operations, we can see the FBI's disruption playbook and how it changed depending on who they were attacking. This playbook ranged from strategies that seemed silly 
to strategies that easily could have gotten people killed. One of the most benign strategies the FBI would whip out is the equivalent to your right-wing uncle tagging you in his weird-ass QAnon Facebook posts. The FBI would collect newspaper clippings of stories in the news that they thought supported the position of the government, and they would just mail a bunch of them to activists. For example, the FBI would do these mailings targeting Jewish members of the Communist Party with news clippings about poor treatment of Jewish people in the Soviet Union. They would also target college administrators with articles about communist activity on campuses to try to get them to crack down. This particular play seems pretty goddamn silly, because everyone knows that nobody changes their mind based off of junk mail. If your forwards-from-grandma-level junk mail strategy isn't working, there's another easy way to stir up chaos and fuck with a target. Targeted information sharing. If you put anyone under surveillance long enough, you're going to eventually find some dirt on them. Maybe they were cheating on their wife, or their parents don't know that they're organizing anti-war protests while off at college. So in order to sow chaos and prevent organization, the FBI can just pass off this information to someone that will do something about it. They would send letters to the parents of college protesters, warning them that their children were associating with known communists. If a letter to the parents wouldn't work, then a letter to the parent's employer, or the landlord, or whoever owned the meeting space could all work to sow discord and make it harder for groups to organize. The accusations the FBI made didn't even need to be based in fact, and one of their throw-shit-at-the-wall strategies was to just send letters saying that the target was cheating on their spouse. This shows one of the funniest parts of these operations, which was the FBI trying to write like they think subversives talk. This is a chunk from a letter written to the wife of a prominent KKK member. Quote, My dear Miss A, I write this letter to you only after a long period of praying to God. I must cleanse my soul of these thoughts. I certainly do not want to create problems inside a family, but I owe a duty to the clans and its principles as well as to my own menfolk who have cast their divine lot with the clans. Your husband came to me about a year ago, and my menfolk blindly followed his leadership, believing him to be the savior of this country. They never believed the stories that he stole money from the clan in another town, or that he is now making over $25,000 a year. They never believed the stories that your house in that town has a new refrigerator, washer, and dryer, and yet one year ago was threadbare. They refused to believe that your husband now owns three cars and a truck, including the new white car. But I believe all these things and can forgive them for a man wants to do for his family the best way he can. I don't have any of these things and I don't grudge you any of them neither. But your husband has been committing the greatest of the sins of our Lord for many years. He has taken the flesh of another unto himself. Yes, Miss A, he has been committing adultery. My menfolk say they don't believe this, but I think they do. I feel like crying. I saw her with my own eyes. They call her Ruby. Her last name is something like Veronica, and she lives in the 700 block of that other town. I know this. I saw her strut around at a rally with her lust-filled eyes and smart-aleck figure. End quote. Whether or not this was effective was pretty well impossible to tell. But the FBI did chalk one of these operations up as a victory in their logs because a marriage broke up within a few months of their operations. 
This strategy is not even technically illegal, other than the warrantless wiretapping that the FBI was allowed to do. Another strategy the FBI used that was on the middle school or prank level reminds me a lot of the time earlier this year that a bunch of kids on TikTok signed up for tickets to a Trump rally, so they planned for thousands of people coming and much fewer actually showed up. When some student groups that were protesting the war in Vietnam made plans to show up at the Democratic Convention in 1968, they put out a form for people to sign up to host students at their house. The FBI filled out over 200 of these forms with fake addresses, causing chaos to the student groups and forcing them to throw out all the addresses rather than sort through and trying to find if any of them were correct. Because of the success of this strategy, the FBI used the same attack against other groups organizing to protest the 1969 presidential inauguration. From here, the strategies started to shift from stupid pranks to be a little more serious. When the FBI had to tell elected officials what they were doing and how they were getting information, the main tactic they told anyone about was sowing chaos using informants. The FBI would either send agents in to infiltrate the organizations, or they would find a weak link that they could bully with trumped-up charges or the threat of an IRS audit. Once you had a few informants, you had both an easy line of information and you could sow discord in the ranks. The communists were the easiest to target with this strategy, because communists are usually pretty ideologically driven, and there are massive disagreements in how, in how best to make the world communist. The FBI had an easy time pouring gas on the fire of the divisions between factions like the Stalinists and Trotskyists, or any of the other divided flavors of communism. It was easy to throw a meeting into chaos with a few well-placed questions asked by the informants. What should we do with moderate leftists who oppose communist revolution? Some would say kill them, some would say re-educate them, some would say allow them political representation. Is a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan imperialism? Some would say yes, others no. Should communism incorporate ideas of ethnicity and race, or should all people be considered completely equally? All of these questions have a bunch of wildly different answers and could turn any communist meeting into a shitshow of disagreement. If they were too busy arguing about how the world should work when they run it, they were never organized enough to actually take over the world. It's easy to think about how this strategy would be effective if you have ever seen a meeting get derailed by a petty disagreement where both sides are fully prepared to die on their separate hills. I feel like I could destroy a meeting of people who loved movies with a few well-placed questions. Is Star Wars better than Lord of the Rings? Everyone knows DC or movies are way better than Marvel ever since Wonder Woman came out. Doesn't everybody agree that movies based on books are better, but only if they make big changes to the source material? You let fly with some controversial nonsense, and suddenly a group of people who thought they all agreed on something simple, like loving movies, are at each other's throats over petty garbage. The strategies only start getting darker from here. A key component of disrupting and discouraging organization was intensive investigation. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about how if you put anyone under surveillance long enough, you're gonna find them doing something. Well, this is the whole basis of this attack. You fish through everything they've ever done, you bug their house, and then you just wait and rack up the records. Was their house improperly inspected? Did they file their taxes perfectly? Do they have any outstanding speeding tickets? 
anything can be used to bureaucratically fuck you simply because the FBI decided to target you. One of the groups that was the target of what the FBI called intensive attention was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by Martin Luther King Jr. In San Diego, local police were tipped off that the local Black Panther Party chapter was running sex orgies, so they put the place under surveillance. They kept them under surveillance until they found a person with an active warrant, which they used as justification to raid the premises and toss the place. From an FBI tip, to heightened surveillance by the police, to the trashing of a field office, it didn't take much to disrupt organizations when law enforcement wanted to. And then we get to the fucked up strategies. One of the most effective and easiest strategy for the FBI was one called the Snitch Jacket. The groups that the FBI were infiltrating, from the KKK to the student protest groups, were afraid and aware of the possibility that they were being infiltrated by law enforcement. Once a few successful disruption operations had been run, suspicions would be running high in a group, and there might be a few actual spies that are trying to cover their tracks. The snitch jacket strategy throws the heat on someone else. They'd create evidence or spread rumors that a specific member of the group was an FBI informant. This was a great strategy for taking down up-and-coming members of the group before they could become leaders. This fit in with their ongoing goal of preventing a messiah from rising, someone who could unite multiple groups and fight for systemic change. If there was someone important who couldn't be brought down by surveillance and tax audits, you slap a snitch jacket on them and they will be kicked out of their group or at least put under intense suspicion. The snitch jacket got dangerous when it was used in targeting groups that killed suspected spies. This strategy was used most flagrantly when attacking black nationalist movements. One of the worst things about these strategies is that the FBI used different strategies for different groups. Since one of these groups is majority black and one of them is a white nationalist hate group, I will give you one guess which was treated delicately and which was exposed to the risk of death. The group that was treated the best was the white supremacists. Operations to disrupt these groups didn't spread to attacking supporters or sponsors. This is not to say that they didn't disrupt these groups effectively, as the FBI succeeded in destroying entire regional chapters of the KKK. But they were much less likely to be targeted with violent measures. The anti-communist program, which included combating student protest groups and hunting subversive teachers and other figures who worked with impressionable youth, were most frequently targeted with operations that violate the right to free speech. But the group that was most frequently targeted with violent and unconstitutional attacks was the Black Nationalism Pro. Strategies that incited violence or risked getting people killed were used far more often than against either the communists or the white hate groups. When asked about this, the chief of the FBI's Racial Intelligence Division said, quote, You have to be able to make decisions, and I'm sure that labeling somebody as an informant that you'd want to make certain that it served a good purpose before you did it, and not do it haphazardly. It is a serious thing. As far as I'm aware, in the black extremist area, by using that technique, no one was killed. I'm sure of that. End quote. When asked whether him thinking the FBI's strategies hadn't resulted in any deaths was the result of planning or luck, he said, quote, Oh, it just happened that way, I'm sure. End quote. So this guy, when deposed by Congress and only forced to share documents that they choose to show, says, yeah, I'm pretty sure we didn't get anybody killed. 
but that was more of just a happy coincidence than an actual goal. The FBI's black bag jobs were some of the jobs that were the most blatantly against the law rather than just immoral or legally gray. The FBI conducted hundreds of these missions that usually consisted of breaking into somewhere and photographing documents and installing microphones. While the microphone installation is technically legal for the FBI, and sometimes approved by the regular legal system, the other crimes committed during break-ins were not approved of by the legal system, so they just didn't tell anybody about them. Standing FBI policy was called a, quote, do-not-file procedure, which meant any record of these operations was destroyed immediately after completion. One of the only records that Congress could find on how these black bag operations were run was a memo that said, quote, we do not obtain operation authorization for black bag jobs from outside the Bureau. Such techniques involve trespassing and is clearly illegal. Therefore, it would be impossible to obtain any legal sanction for it. Despite this, black bag jobs have been used because they represent an invaluable technique in combating subversive activities of a clandestine nature aimed directly at undermining and destroying our nation, end quote. So this goes right back to both the justification of Cointelpro as a way to fight foreign enemies and the justification that extreme means were necessary to protect the country, even if they were illegal. An agent on a team responsible for many of these black bag operations reported that in most cases, it wasn't even necessary to pick a lock to break in, as they could usually flash a badge at the building owner, neighbor, or hotel manager and get a key. Another agent reported that his specific job was the cracking of locks and safes, while other agents specialized in other tasks. A black bag operation allowed the FBI to get their hands on membership and financial information on the KKK, which helped them disrupt the organization so effectively that they functionally imploded. The Socialist Workers' Party was targeted with at least 90 break-ins from 1960 to 1966. The investigations of the Church Committee also uncovered a whole range of terrible things that the intelligence community was up to. These included a ridiculous number of attempted assassinations of foreign leaders, like Fidel Castro. They also uncovered the NSA's watch list, and one of the most terrifying potential subversions of human rights we will talk about today, the SI list. The Security Index, as the FBI called it, was a list of people, 26,000 of them by 1971, who were to be arrested and then imprisoned without cause or trial in the event of a national emergency. Based on a law passed by Congress panicked about communist subversion in 1950 called the McCarran Act, the intent was initially to register and arrest known communists, but like everything else the FBI was doing at the time, this soon expanded to include novelists, poets, black student activists, and others that the FBI director did not trust. Even though the McCarran Act was officially revoked in 1971, as the COINTELPRO program was being discovered by Congress and the public, it was quietly continued for years after its official end, and I would bet cold hard cash that it is still not really gone. So now the question becomes, what were they telling their bosses? One of the important lessons of COINTELPRO comes from how it was allowed to happen, and how much that oversight it had from elected officials. 
Politicians would like to distance themselves from a program like this, because even in the depths of the Cold War, finding out that the FBI was up to this terrible stuff would not have been politically popular. But Cointelpro was started because there was a concern among elected officials about communism in the 50s, and a sense that local law enforcement did not have the capabilities to deal with the problem of subversive groups on their own. The FBI initially justified this program as a way to disrupt just the Communist Party in the United States because evidence had been found that they had been working with the Soviet Union to commit sabotage. So the program got to claim they were working for national defense against foreign spies, and the FBI gets to ignore all the rules and target people like they are enemies of the state. Now all this information that I've shared so far comes from a congressional report on this COINTELPRO program. The simple fact that this program was investigated by Congress and turned into a massive political scandal is strong evidence for two key points. The first is that while the United States government gets up to some shady shit that can be compared to the secret police activity of states like the Soviet Union, at least here we have protections like the free press and congressional oversight of the executive branch that can uncover and fight bad behavior like this. The other key point is that while everyone would love to blame these bad programs on some kind of mystical deep state, it is still elected officials that have the ability to control these programs if they choose to. This particular report was put together by a Senate Select Committee that is commonly referred to as the Church Committee after its chairman, Idaho Democratic Senator Frank Church. This committee produced a whole series of bombshell reports uncovering dirty, covert activity that the United States was involved in. One of the key findings was that NSA watch list, which included millions of people for scrutiny, including the committee's chair, Frank Church. In an appearance to the press, Church very clearly laid out the biggest problem with all of this data collection and covert activity, saying, quote, If this government ever became a tyranny, if a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny, and there would be no way to fight back because the most careful efforts to combine together in resistance to the government, no matter how privately it was done, is within the reach of the government to know. Such is the capability of this technology." End quote. This is the true danger of these programs. Even if they aren't behaving like the, like the Gestapo or the KGB today, the switch is just waiting to be flipped to turn these programs against other political groups. But I digress, because the point of what we're trying to figure out now is the classic Watergate question about elected officials. What did they know, and when did they know it? Was this some kind of deep state cabal of mustache-twiddling CIA agents taking orders from the lizard people? or were elected officials aware of and supportive of these programs? Well, as part of the church committee, the FBI had to dig up all of their communications with the government. The first letter notifying the government that the COINTELPRO program had started was sent in 1958 to both the special assistant to President Eisenhower and to Attorney General William Rogers. For those that listened to my last podcast, you might remember that Eisenhower was famous for his focus on fighting the threat of communism, having made it a key issue in his election. The letter said that the FBI had started a counterintelligence program to disrupt the activity of the Communist Party of the United States. They said that, quote, several techniques have been utilized to accomplish our objectives, end quote, 
which sounds like some shit you would write on a book report on a book that you only skimmed the spark notes on. Several techniques, you might as well say that India has several people in it, or that Dante's girlfriend and clerks had sucked several dicks. The specifics matter, people. Are we talking two or three, or are we talking about try not to suck any dicks on the way through the parking lot? So with that letter, at least in theory, the president and the attorney general might know that the FBI is doing several somethings to disrupt the Communist Party. This is also pretty funny, because these letters are the evidence the FBI is presenting to the church committee that, see, we did tell elected officials what was going on, and they still can barely scrounge up these few notifications. The next one comes from a letter in 1961 to the same role in the incoming Kennedy administration. This switchover could have been the end of the fun for the FBI, as they were losing their anti-communist general president and getting some fresh baby named Namby-Pamby Democrat. As part of the letter, they laid out the usual information they had gathered on the CPUSA's activity, and some of what they called counterattacks against the commies. They conveniently left out that most of the shit they were pulling was just as much of a counterattack as Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. That is to say, it was definitely just an attack. It wasn't counter to anything. They also had a list of achievements that the program had achieved, like preventing the CPUSA from taking over a Chicago chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. The FBI had some evidence that it notified the Kennedy administration that it had an active counterintelligence operation against both the Communist Party and their newly started White Hate COINTELPRO operation. They did not talk about some of their more harmful strategies, and only went into detail on their stupid little mailer program and efforts to promote factionalism in these groups by having their moles bring up and push inflammatory subjects. So they did notify the Kennedy administration that they were engaging in attacks on domestic political groups, but they only really told them about the benign and legal strategies they were using, while leaving out all the really sketchy shit they were doing, like warrantless wiretaps. From this evidence that the FBI dug up for the Congressional Committee to, tr to try to prove they weren't operating without oversight, we can see that elected officials did know that these programs existed, although they didn't usually know the full extent of the bad behavior taking place. However, a big reason that they didn't know is because they didn't want to know. Not learning more about the specifics of the FBI's methods was a choice, and choosing to stick your head in the sand is no defense. Multiple presidents had the choice to find out more and to put guardrails on the FBI, but they didn't want to know what they were up to because there was no possible way the information that they were passing on was gathered in a constitutional manner. From 1961 to 1971, the FBI spun up their COINTEL program until they were investigating not just communists and the KKK, but also student groups, black church groups, nonviolent protest movements, and even members of the Democratic Party. Without elected officials that were interested in hearing the nitty-gritty on how they were gathering information and disrupting groups they decided were subversive, they behaved with impunity. The period from 1961 to 1971 is when the FBI's COINTELPRO operation looks the most like a Soviet-style secret police force, disrupting and destroying legitimate political organizations and hate groups without any distinction between them. So what happened in 1971, you might be thinking? Well, 
That's when a group called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI enters our story. This was a group of activists who planned a burglary of an FBI field office, carefully planned on the night of the famous Joe Frazier vs. Muhammad Ali boxing match in the hopes that the security guards would be distracted watching the fight. The group broke in and managed to escape with around a thousand documents, which they mailed to newspapers all over the country. From the documents that they were able to escape with, 1% was dedicated to organized crime, 30% were boring junk like manuals, 40% was dedicated to political surveillance, and 14% were investigations of draft resistance, with the remaining 15% being actual investigations of crimes. Of the 40% dedicated to political surveillance, you can see the FBI's priorities in who they were investigating. Two right-wing groups, 10 concerning immigrants, and over 200 left-leaning or liberal groups. Critically, these documents also revealed a wacky little word that no one in the public or in Congress had ever heard before, Cointelpro. With this word out in the public, all of a sudden, people could target their questions around this label, and this opened up the media shitstorm that, that would eventually lead to the Church Committee and its broad investigation of the intelligence community. Now, I would love to end this story by saying that Cointelpro is dead and gone, and now the FBI are a bunch of Boy Scouts who are completely focused on bank robberies and interstate crime. But that is not the way that this has shaped out since the 1970s. There was a short period of focused intelligence reform, with changes like the strengthening of the Freedom of Information request in 1974 and the official end of Cointelpro. But that would give you a completely wrong impression. By officially ending Cointelpro in the 70s, the FBI essentially just wised up and decided to stop labeling their illegal activity with the word Cointelpro. By the 1980s, this dickhead named Ronald Reagan was in charge and he declared intelligence reform over. Groups that opposed his foreign policy faced the same break-ins, illegal surveillance, and disruption as during the heyday of COINTELPRO in the 1960s. Then came 9-11, and the passage of the Patriot Act, and any restrictions on the FBI and other intelligence agencies were smashed in the name of protecting Americans from terrorism. To anyone still thinking that the ends justify the means when it comes to communists and the KKK, Chew on this quote from a 1927 Supreme Court opinion. Quote, Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher. For good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. Crime is contagious. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. To declare that in the administration of the criminal law, the ends justify the means, to declare that the government may commit crimes in order to secure the conviction of the private criminal would bring terrible retribution. Against the pernicious doctrine, this court should absolutely, resolutely set its face. End quote. So this story does not have a happy ending. I would bet every penny to my name that the current FBI is as bad, if not worse, than they were during the heyday of the COINTELPRO operation. Organizations like Black Lives Matter, the Sunrise Movement, and other left-leaning groups that are pushing for social change or that are against right-wing foreign policy priorities are just as vulnerable to the strategies of disruption and surveillance as any group that was protesting the Vietnam War. 
That is why it's important to understand that this stuff happened and is not some crackpot conspiracy, and to see that these same strategies of disruption could be just as effective today. This is why it is so damn dangerous to have a proto-fascist like Donald Trump as president, because for all of his supposed jokes about postponing the election or refusing to step down, he is in charge of a system of surveillance and violence that could easily keep him in power if he chose. The United States is primed for a turn to dictatorship, and the state systems necessary for a dictatorship as brutal and totalitarian as North Korea, China, or Russia exist right now. With that said, what the fuck am I even doing talking about this? Like, goddammit, I already know I'm going to be listening to my own recording of this when I'm being held prisoner without charge and getting my fingernails pulled out by representatives of the glorious American Republic of Trumpia in 2035. Plus, I've been doing podcasts on Russian mercenary groups when Russia has proved that they are willing to poison a bitch anywhere on the planet at the drop of a hat. At this point, my plan is just to do a podcast on so many intelligence agencies that I have a dedicated agent from a bunch of them that have to listen to my podcasts. That's how I'm going to build my viewership. If you're listening to this right now, Mr. FBI agent, then ha, fucking got him. You had to listen to this whole thing to get to this point. Well, I'm going to stop talking before I get my dumbass assassinated. Peace out, y'all.